Dr. Kimberly Young is a researcher and associate professor of psychiatry at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Her research focuses on real-time fMRI neurofeedback, autobiographical memory, and depression. Without further introduction, I bring you Dr. Kimberly Young. Well, thanks so much for, for joining me, and uh, I appreciate you taking the risk to, to have a conversation with a stranger. <laughs> I love talking about my research. I will talk about my research to anyone who listens. So thank yeah, well, you for for, uh, for giving me the opportunity. No, of course. Of course. Well, you have a lot of it. So I, I certainly didn't even make a dent. <laughs> I was a little ambitious thinking what I could read, but I have at least a few titles. <laughs> um, so why don't you inter- introduce yourself? Um, I'll, of course, in the episode, give you a more formal introduction, but okay. it might be helpful for you to introduce yourself and maybe talk about what you do. Sure. Yeah. So um, I am Kimberly Young. I have a PhD in neuroscience and I'm an associate professor of psychiatry at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. And I'm also the director of the Biological Affect Modulation Lab or BAM Lab. Um, And that is where I do my research. And my research uh, recently focuses on fMRI neurofeedback. And so basically what that is, is it's you take uh, someone, put them in an fMRI scanner, and then you show them how active a certain part of their brain is in real time and help them gain control and they'll learn control over that activity. And that seems to result in beneficial effects for patients with depression um, in, in our studies. And so we're, we're really excited about this. And I am uh, starting a, a new clinical trial, a large scale clinical trial um, to, to really try and, and move this uh, out of the world of academia and into the community. Yeah, awesome. Um, I'm interested in your academic background was neuro, um, not neuroscience, was neurofeedback sort of overdetermined? Were you already really interested in that? Or did you discover that? No, no, so the, specific? so I, I actually went to school to be a lawyer. Um, okay. <laughs> I had no interest in science. Um, but then while I was in college, my dad experienced something called transient global amnesia. Mm. And so it's this very rare, poorly understood phenomenon where you're just not able to make new memories for a couple hours. Uh, so he'd just keep asking where he was and, and why he was there. And, and the doctors just don't really have a good explanation for why it happens. It's not a stroke. Um, so that got me really interested in memory and how memory worked or didn't work. Um, and so I ended up taking some neuroscience elective classes and fell in love with it. Mm. Um, and so abandoned the, the, the law being the lawyer, uh, and went into neuroscience and I started, uh, re- in researching memory and particularly autobiographical memories and you know, t- transient global amnesia is really rare, not very easy to study. So that was not where, uh, I was able to devote my efforts, but I started learning about, um, memory problems that certain disorders were associated with and found that pe- people with depression have difficulty recalling specific autobiographical memories. So they have trouble recalling events from their life. Like if I were to say to you, give you a keyword, like party, you could probably tell me, you know, a party you went to last week or something. 
a, a patient with depression is more likely to say something like, well, I've been to parties or I don't get invited to parties without mm -hmm. accessing a specific memory. Um, and, and so that was what I started wanting to look at. Well, what's the brain doing or not doing when these patients are recalling these memories? And so that's where my research started uh, was in basically scanning using fMRI, which measures uh, brain activity. So you use more oxygen as your brain is more active, supposedly reflecting neural activity. Um, and they that I use that to measure the brain activity of healthy people and patients with depression as they were called these positive or so first, I looked at specific autobiographical memories, you know, what, what was going on in their brains. And uh, a, a bunch of them were telling me afterwards, you know, I had, a, I, it was nice to just sit there and recall some memories. Um, I, you know, I, my, I've always told, I, I've always feel like I have no memories. My wife tells me I have no memories. Uh, and so I, what I started looking at was, well, okay, what, what was different between the, the two groups? And then those people that seem to have a mood improvement after the uh, the one scan, what was going on there? Um, and so what I found was that there was this one brain region that was different. It was differentiating my, my healthy individuals from my patients with depression. Um, and we, uh, sorry. <laughs> Different, and when we looked at this region, it was found that the people who had more activity in this region were actually less depressed. They were less severely depressed than people who didn't have activity in this region. And what we found, this region is the amygdala which is a brain region that is, um, you probably heard it in the context of fight or flight, but it's, it's a salience detector. It responds to important things in your environment and both positive and negative. And so what, what's happening in the brains of depressed patients is that this region is responding, is over responding to negative things, but not responding to positive things. And so uh, there are a lot of therapies um, out there for depression that focus on negative things and controlling responses to negative things. Um, and so what I was interested in was, well, okay, if, if this region seems to be responsible or, or play a role in, in people being able to recall specific memories and derive reward from that, then let's let's what can how can we increase activity there uh and you can't do it with direct uh, with with things like tms they don't go deep enough into the brain uh and so this new technology was emerging as i was a postdoc uh that that we were not technology but the new technique um where you could actually get fmri data back in real time and show it to people and, and have them manipulate it. Uh, and so I was, it was fortunate. That was, that was my path to neurofeedback. I, I was really interested in memory, started looking at how, you know, how memory could be impaired and then what the, how the brain was different um, from healthy individuals and then targeting what was different to try and make it more behave in a, in a way that mirrors healthy individuals. Uh, and I had a great advisor at the time who was a, he was a, an amazing physicist 
And he had this neurofeedback technology and was like, hey, you, you, you want to manipulate the amygdala? I want to I want to try out this new neurofeedback stuff. Let's work together. And, and that was how everything started. Was any part of you um, suspicious? Were you concerned about how not new because there's quite a history to neurofeedback, but were you, uh, you, even in your description, you were saying things like supposedly the brain does this supposedly, it, you know, it. Yeah. We do this. make a lot of assumptions as, as neuroscientists. Right. Um, was any part of you suspicious? I, I came into this recently um, and I'm still uh, suspicious. Isn't the right word. I'm totally untrained, yeah. but I'm no, curious, it's... but I keep bumping it into resistance. Um, Absolutely. And that's largely because of EEG neurofeedback, um, mm. which has been around for a lot longer. Um, and there are neurofeedback clinics that have popped up all over the country. Uh, there is one in Pittsburgh um, where they say they can cure a variety of disorders by doing EEG neurofeedback. They make these claims, but there have been no randomized clinical trials to show that this is effective. And when there have been studies of them, they've usually shown no benefit over a placebo intervention. The only exception to that is alpha theta neurofeedback for ADHD. That is FDA approved um, and that is evidence-based, but there's so much kind of snake oil out there. I mean, um, Betsy DeVos ran a neurofeedback, <laughs> neurofeedback clinic um, and that just, you know, they, it's not being driven by science and that's out there. And that's something that I've had to kind of combat and say, well, you know, we're doing this the right way. We're doing the randomized controlled trials, but also fMRI has a lot of advantages. It has disadvantages for relative to EEG, but one of the advantages is that you can really target these deep brain structures like the amygdala. With EEG, you can only get really the, the areas on the, the very top, the, the surface of your brain. And a lot of psychiatric disorders, the main brain regions involved are these deep limbic structures like the amygdala. And you just can't measure that with EEG. So by being able to really directly target the mechanism, you know, I think we are, are and, and, and having randomized clinical trials, um, we are really trying to reduce that skepticism and build faith back in what neurofeedback can do. Yeah. Awesome answer. So I, I became interested in this because I had a student with ADHD and the, the mom, you, you could imagine, I get a lot of parents who sort of go the diagnosis um, and then get some sort of medication. So it's like diagnosis, prescription, and then no compensatory strategies. Um, and this mom seemed really proactive in both categories. And she said that they were doing EEG feedback. I thought, wow, that's really interesting. And I don't know if it's um, alpha theta or not, but I spoke to the guy and I, I don't know if there's another type of EEG feedback that's not alpha theta. He did mention alpha waves at some point. So I'm assuming it is. I, I would assume that that is the most popular, the standard, the FDA approved ADHD intervention. So that I would, I would assume that. Interesting. But I think he offers other things at that clinic, I think for dementia and things like that. Um, and it did have this sort of silver bullet 
um, if not a silver bullet, but it, it, it felt very generalizable. Um, and there was a deep skepticism to that. At the same time, I was thinking the way that I understand this operant conditioning, though it may be at the beginning, it starts to feel like computer um, facilitated meditation. Yeah. <laughs> you're getting my student to sort of be in a certain state of mind um, based on this feedback from the screen. Obviously, he's not even looking at the EEG record, but I was a little confused because I was thinking, oh, there's this deep skepticism of the general generalizability of EEG feedback. And yet we seem to be culturally, I don't know, from a scientific perspective, we seem to be all in on the generalizability of something as you know vague as meditation itself. Um, and, and I sort of saw some analogies to the two. Well, and that's, you know, that's a lot of why it's effective is because most of these EEG neurofeedback interventions involve you doing something, involve you resting, involve you relaxing your mind. Mm. Um, Whereas my intervention actually targets something you do in daily life, which is recall positive memories Uh, and uh, a lot of other fMRI neurofeedback interventions. So for smoking cessation, it's controlling brain activity while you see pictures of, of cigarettes and other triggering cues. For um, individuals with obesity, it's it's controlling brain activity when you see pictures of appetizing food. Um, so that again, in fMRI, we're really targeting the underlying mechanism. Whereas with EEG, I feel like we're we're targeting relaxing meditation, putting yourself into kind of a a relaxed state, because that's what most of the EEG interventions do is is basically have you sit there, stare at a screen and try and control a bar um, while you're not engaged in a task. Right. And it it is a very from a layperson's point of view, it's a very, it seems nebulous where at first it's sort of operant conditioning. It's almost unconscious, but we're going to like raise it to the level of conscious awareness. Um, a sentence like that seems almost destined to confuse people. Yeah, it does. You're, you're confusing me a little bit, but it's <laughs> <laughs> what you know, that, that it's, I, I don't know. That, that gets into consciousness and we could have a whole other discussion about the nature totally. of consciousness. <laughs> sure. So, I do have a question, maybe going from my very cursory um, exposure to EEG to fMRI, um, you're, you seem to be really interested in that the fMRI is sort of targeting a deeper part of the brain than the EEG. Although there is a part of neurofeedback, I, I'm led to believe, where it is important that they're aware of that deeper you're sort of bringing that deeper function to consciousness or like to their awareness. Is that correct? Not, no, uh, okay. <laughs> that's not exactly what I would say. Um, they're really, they're targeting with EEG, they're targeting prefrontal regions. And mm-hmm. so they're, and these are regions that have downstream effects on the other regions. Um, but they, they really don't make limbic and deep structures conscious awareness they really don't they don't touch them at, at all oh oh no i'm sorry i'm thinking for you oh you're for making, me i'm sorry yeah you're making the limbic system sort of you're make from what i understand you're making them more aware of that system um, yes yes so, so, so yes so what way. it's like to yes i'm sorry yes you're absolutely right i thought you were asking about eg but no for for fmri neurofeedback that's what we're doing is we're bringing these these regions that are automatic 
Um, you know, the amygdala is very much involved in what you automatically pick out as important. And so we're bringing that into conscious awareness and you know what it feels like uh, when your amygdala is active. And, mm. and what's great about this training is that even though we're just training up to positive, what we're seeing is a corresponding decrease to negative stimuli. So after the training, we see we because one question everyone had was, are you just non specifically making the amygdala respond to everything, which would be bad because right. it should it's already over responsive to the negative things. So we had people do some emotional tasks after the neurofeedback. And we saw that there was this increase to of amygdala response to positive stimuli, but there was also a decrease in activity in response to negative stimuli. So we're really teaching people control, adaptive control, what it feels like to, to bring it online, what it feels like to have it offline. Um, and we're, we're doing this all without pills or injections or having to, to share uh, about your mother to a stranger. <laughs> so, so with that, what does the actual setup of the room look like? What does the equipment look like? Um... Yep. So if you we could maybe walk me through that. Yeah, that practice. Yeah, we have, we have an fMRI scanner, um, and that is honestly the uh, most important part, but also the biggest barrier to clinical implementation. It's a very expensive machine, uh, and it requires a lot of specialized equipment, uh, storage, and technicians to run it. Uh, so in the fMRI room, there's just the MRI machine uh, and people basically they come in and they lay down on a bed and their head is in uh, a, a coil. It's, a, it's, it's like a little cage, but it's not you can see out of it. Yeah. And then we slide them into the scanner and they can see uh, they have these glass. They have this mirror that lets them see the screen so they can see outside of the scanner. Um, and on that screen, we show them a thermometer and the thermometer represents their activity in the brain region that we've selected. Mm. And their goal is to try and raise that thermometer. Um, and so what's happening is that in, in the back end, there's uh, a bunch of computing going on where we're turning the, the, the MRI signal into something that we can then interpret and show to and feedback to people. Um, and but we do this all in two seconds. Uh, it's a it's super fast computation that couldn't have been done 20 years ago, really. Um, and that and and so then that's what they do. They see the screen, they see their activity, they are encouraged beforehand, we get them a, a set of positive memories that they can draw on. Um, but what's great about this intervention is that they go in, well, first, uh, people will often say, you know, I have no positive memories, mm. or yes, but yes, I, I had a great time with my daughter last weekend, but she's a teenager, and you know, things are going to be awful, or yes, I graduated, but I haven't really done anything with it. Um, and so we, it's, it's really hard for them to just come up with a few positive memories that stay positive. And we help them generate those. And that can take a while. Um, but once they're in the scanner and actually doing this, they come out of the scanner with so many memories. Mm. Yeah, they, go, they, they go in with three. They come out with like 15 to 20 um, that they just all of a sudden are, are able to, they're able to, to access them and to keep them positive. 
Um, and that, yeah, so that's, it's, lots of computers are involved as well. Wow. Is there, is there anything about your understanding of the brain that helps you understand that sort of gateway function where once they're sort of able to identify a few, uh, it sounds like the floodgates occasionally open. What, yeah, what ha- yeah. What's happening there? Um, I think, you know, it's, it's that they're, they have so much trouble accessing them, but it's, it's, no, it's not like, it, it just needs a key. They just need to know they're there. So they know where to look, they, where their brain, they, they know where to look basically mm. um, to know that they have this reserve. And so that, you know, once you start activating memory pathways and positive affect reward centers, um, you just, you, you, it's a cascade. You can think of, it's easier to think of more um, because those brain areas are already online. Interesting. Wow. That's fascinating. Um... What does the duration of therapy look like from that yes. independent session to do you do that over multiple sessions? We do two sessions and we've actually done a study where we gave five sessions um, and we asked participants, first of all, how many sessions do you want? But we also looked at when they stopped receiving a benefit, like when they stopped increasing their amygdala, they all got to a certain point and they were not going to increase activity further. Mm. Uh, and they got to that point on the second visit. So uh, two visits, it seems to be the, the right number that we just intuitively picked. Uh, and they, they do two hour and a half MRI sessions. And we have seen the effects, uh, the antidepressant effects persist for at least 12 weeks. Um, when combined with cognitive therapy, the effects have lasted over a year. Hmm. Um, and we are investigating now, just uh, we're about to start now, just following up for, for a year without any other interventions in the interim. Wow, so fascinating. Does your mind, like mine maybe, go in all these different directions of experimentation. I'm curious, have you thought of, I'm sure you have, but is, are there reasons why you would consider reasons why you would not consider um, doing the two sessions again after a year and seeing if there's. Yeah. So that's, that's absolutely, I would love to do booster sessions. And I would love to see the effect of that, the, the practical limitations are are the cost and Mm. having the, the funding for that. Um, it, it's, it's, it's expensive. Um, sure. And that is, again, the main limitation is, is the expense of, of this intervention. Mm-hmm. But when you compare two, you know, two MRI sessions, you're talking about $2,500 maybe at that, at a, at a really expensive rate. Uh, that is still less than a lifetime of antidepressants or, TMS or ECT, you know, these, these other interventions are, and, and, or see our cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, that's $250 a session. Um, and I think so, the, and the you have to have at least 16. Right, right. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's true with the EEG neurofeedback as well. They found that you can't do it in one or two sessions. You really need like 15 to 20 sessions to really get learn control over whatever it is they're trying to get you to to what signal they're getting you to control Hmm. um and so that's another so it's expensive and funding 
makes it so that I can't do booster sessions yet. Um, but I do think that it's not prohibitive. It's not when you look at it relative to other costs and like, especially lifetime costs, if this is a, you know, two sessions will stop, will, will prevent that. Maybe I could convince an insurance company. Yeah. There's a really tricky, it, well, the insurance, uh, company question seems much more pragmatic than this next one, but there's this really tricky question here where people are probably tentative of um, maybe any therapy, right? Yet alone something that might seem in the general milieu like um, alternative at the moment, right? Um, it's really, that's a lot of overhead, I think, to, to try something, right? So while if they're convinced of it, it doesn't seem necessarily prohibitive because they can compare that cost, you know, in two sessions to the cost of X amount of years of whatever, or 16 sessions of CBT or something. But if they're not convinced of it, then it does seem a lot of overhead to experiment with that. Um, and that's and that's the the research we're doing. We're trying to, to get yeah. the research so that I can take it to, you know, take it to the people, take it and say, look, this this works. Let's have that conversation. That's it. That's interesting. Can I go back to the, the actual individual session? Yeah. Um, they lay down coil into the machine. Uh, they have the, the mirrors and I, and it sounded like there was sort of a pre-session to figure out what memories you could go to. Um, did you come up with those questions? I'm interested in the protocol to come up with those sort of. That yeah. Sort of so initially what we did was just said, Think of positive memories and make this bar go up. Um, and we didn't really have them give them any instruction or any strategy because we didn't know. And so what we did was we asked them after they came out, what memories were you using? What are the property, you know, the, not mm. what the, describe the memory yeah. in detail so that we can then analyze the properties of the memories. Um, and what we found is that uh, there's a lot of social memories um, and have thinking, <laughs> think, thinking about the government is bad, is not, is not productive at all. Um, it's not a positive memory these days. Mm -hmm. um, using the word I, uh, or when you're describing your memory is is helpful. And what we've found is that people are are finding that their memories are able to stay positive and they start thinking about particularly rewarding parts of their memory, particularly good parts of their memory, uh, and then also how their memory relates to who they are today. And I think making, you know, kind of bringing that into the sense of self um, helps them use positive memories more adaptively is that's the thing. It's, it's not that they just can't recall positive memories. They do have trouble recalling positive memories, but they're not using them for things like problem solving and emotion regulation that you see in, in healthy individuals. And so by, by making that, by bringing these, you know, forcing basically your brain to say, look at this, this is important mm. and good. Um, that they're able to then use the memories adaptively. Fascinating. And, and that, so that, that leads to a new question because what we knew from beforehand, there's research showing if you just put someone with depression in a room and say, think of positive memories, their mood actually gets worse. 
Um, So just saying, hey, think of happy memories is not effective. Mm. Um, And so it's really, it's recalling happy memories while bringing the right brain regions online. Now, can we bring the brain regions online without the fMRI neurofeedback is a new interesting direction. You can we... uh, show pictures or how you know is a really direct their memory recall or uh, even provide a, a, a drug or a, a, a something um, that would bring this these brain regions online while they're recalling positive memories because that's what the key is is that mm. you're it's not just that you're recalling them it's that you're you're adaptively recalling them um, and I, I compare it to so the very first talk I gave, uh, some snarky man came up to me and said, hey, it's Peter Pan thinks happy thoughts and you'll fly. Um, and I've actually embraced that metaphor because if, if you think in Peter Pan, if you think happy thoughts and jump out a window, you'll fall. You won't fly. You'll only fly if you think happy thoughts in the presence of pixie dust. So you have to have pixie dust to f- use your happy memories to fly. You have to bring your amygdala online to use mm. your happy memories to function in daily life uh, is, is how I think of it. <laughs> have you run into him since? <laughs> no, no, I have not, uh, which, which says a lot about his career trajectory versus mine. <laughs> uh, oh. <laughs> so it's not personal at all. <laughs> no, no. You just, yeah, it's a great question to ask the, a poor grad student giving her first public talk. Like it was yeah. just, it was, it was an experience. Interesting. Um, so you're saying, you said that's the key. If we can sort of somehow replicate this experience, are you saying that's the key? If we can replicate that experience without the FMR, FMRI machine because of the prohibitive cost? Yes. And that would just be, yeah, fascinating. I mean, yeah, wondering... and that's, that's what, sorry, that's one of my directions of research is trying to figure out, can we move it outside of the scanner? I am still, I'm moving forward with every effort to make this, the, mm. the scanner something clinically available, but I'm also looking at how, is there a way we can move it outside the scanner and make it cheaper and more accessible? Yeah. Interesting. It almost, I, I don't know much about cognitive behavioral therapy, but it almost feels like you could create a protocol or sounds like you're in pursuit of a protocol to replicate that experience without actually having the fMRI. Yes. 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 And so that was, that was exciting with the, when we actually worked with cognitive behavioral therapists, uh, what we found that, so our, our, the people had neurofeedback and it was either of their amygdala or of a control region. And then they had, uh, they had a full course of CBT. And even though the therapist didn't know which group was which, she focused more on positive behaviors and positive cognitions in the uh, group that was ended up being the experimental group. So they patients kind of drive what your focus is and the patients were driving the focus, not to the mm. negative stimuli, but to the positive stimuli. Uh, and a year later, those participants were more likely to still be in remission. Um, so it does suggest that maybe there are some tweaks we can make to cognitive therapies um, that are already out there and available uh, that could be helpful. I'm interested also, or I'm curious about um, sort of on after intervention, if you do do, if you do do um, two sessions of fMRI therapy, neurofeedback therapy, 
if instead of the booster being another two sessions, if the booster could be that tweaked CBT or yeah. some sort of like, even I wonder what utility there might be in having them sort of record themselves talking about it or, or journaling. It, it, it's so interesting to see this bump into so many other types of therapy. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's really exciting. Um, and yeah, we, so we do, we have been doing an, uh, in-depth analysis of the, of the memories people use. We do have them, them write down the memories, um, but they can't do it while they're actually experiencing them because you can't move in the scanner. Uh, and so that's also why we can't have them talk, <laughs> mm. um, which, because uh, there was a lot of, you know, could, could we record, you could be have them say their memories and record that. But if you move your mouth, you move your head. And if you move your head, you lose data. You don't get a good signal. <laughs> yeah. You bring up another problem for me that I anticipate with the individual differences between patients or people where you're going to have, I assume less imaginative people and more imaginative people, and maybe people who are plenty imaginative, but maybe aren't used to talking about their feelings or talking about their memories. And, and maybe there's like a gap between what you see on the screen and maybe what they can articulate. Have you yeah, seen that's... any of that? That's that's fair. Um, a lot of patients just say I you know they can't really describe what it feels like. They just say I go back to when I was in the scanner, um, mm-hmm. I, and that's kind of how they explain how, what it feels like. Um, so that hasn't wow. been particularly useful for us in uh, in disentangling you know what what exactly is going on. Sure. Um, and so yeah, we we do have trouble. People do have have trouble kind of articulating their experience. Um, but what we found is that really there aren't many this works for a wide range of people um we've looked at a lot of so your age doesn't matter your education level doesn't matter um the only thing, so a couple things that do matter. Um, one is that you have the deficit. So if if you if you have a normal amygdala response, then this won't do anything for you. You have to not be bringing your amygdala online when recalling memories to to positive memories to to have this something that is good for you. Uh, and the other seems to be males. Um, for it, for some reason, our females are much more successful than our males. Um, mm. Interestingly, our females and males use different types of memories. Females focus more on the social memories um, and like, you know, friends, kids, babies, animals, whereas the men focus more on adrenaline related memories, like jumping out of a helicopter or playing paintball or uh, things like that. Um, and wow. so that's, and, and what we've also seen is that men seem to already be bringing their amygdala online. Um, so they don't need this. Uh, so it seems like this also speaks to the gender difference in depression. Um, wow. You know, they're, they're, it's much more prevalent in women and why that is, um, is, is a question that's, that's open for debate that people are researching. Wow. But then suddenly your research seems to be right in the middle of that. That's yeah, it suggests that there are different mechanisms that that for for women, it is this under response to positive stimuli for men. It's something else. I don't know what that is. I have not found it yet. <laughs> yeah, all the, those list of uh, memories were a little concerning. <laughs> the airplane yeah, you, and the paintball. Some of the memories I've heard, you, would, you, you wouldn't believe. Does that freak you out when you see them? Their amygdala is sort of through the roof and then they tell you what the memory is and you're like, oh, that's 
not what I would hope would make you really happy. Eh, sometimes, but you know, is if if it's if it's positive for you, that's enough for me. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Memory is a very subjective experience, and you know what people find to be good memories. Um, it, it's it's it varies dramatically from individual to individual. I'll say that. Interesting. This might seem a little redundant, but I, I'm. I want to keep coming back to that individual session and then sort of extrapolate out from there. What are the first prompts you're giving them when they're under and looking at the, through the glasses? What are the very initial prompts? So first it says rest. Uh, we do, it says rest for 40 seconds. And then it says happy uh, and has a thermometer that goes up and down and it does that for 40 seconds. And then it says count. Um, and for 40 seconds, that's our palate cleanser. So mm. it gets people to, you have to count backwards from 300 by a number of like seven, nine. Um, wow. So it makes you stop thinking about your memory and brings you back to the moment and bring, takes your amygdala back to, to baseline. Mm. Uh, and then they repeat that many times, four to, uh, four, four, 16 times. Interesting. So it just is happy. Yeah, that's the only thing, the happy in a bar. Um, but, but before we go in, we, we give them instruction. We tell them. Now we tell them. Uh, you want to think about positive memories. You want to think about uh, the particular positive aspects of them, how it relates to who you are today, why was it a good memory, and um, try and really hold on to the positive moments of it. Saber, almost. Excuse me. That sounds a, a little bit like an orientation is there any sort of um, sort of pre-therapeutic talk about what kinds of memories they should be pulling up or helping them find memories? Like, yeah, does so that make they, you feel? Or? Well, not, not necessarily how does that make you feel, but just sitting down. So what we do is before um, everybody does, anybody does this study that has this intervention, they do something called the autobiographical memory test. Mm. And so that is a test where they're given 18 keywords and asked to recall memories from their lives. So we have this list of memories. A lot of them are going to be are, are not going to be specific, um, but the experimenter can then sit down with the patient and say, well, okay, you know, you, you say you have no happy memories. What about the the time you went to the beach with your family? Um, and so you can kind of help them to, to get to, to find a few positive memories. Uh, and now we suggest things like, do you have any children? Um, you know, was the, a lot of women use the birth of their child as one of their best memories. Um, even though there's, you know, obviously some mixed feelings there, um, but they, they, we can ask, do you have pets? Um, you know, do, do, what do you do to relax? Um, you know, what do you do on your day off? And so that's how we get them to start getting to positive memories. But then what they do with those positive memories in the scanner is, is the, the, the magic, the pixie dust, how they, how they bring the brain online. Um, and the strategies they use is something where we're trying to figure out. Interesting. Do you, have you done any research or has this forced you to do any research through literature about other meditative practices or things that might get the amygdala or have been said to get the amygdala online? 
Yeah, so I, I have actually I have done a lot of research into what activates the amygdala. One thing is just pictures of faces. So he showed a bunch of pictures of faces. Um, that that so maybe just having somebody sit in a room uh, while they're looking at faces, neutral faces, flash at them would be uh, effective. Uh, there are drugs that selectively activate the amygdala. Um, they're not common drugs. They're ones I would have to you know get approval from the FDA to use for this purpose. Like um, what? I, I I can't I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, okay. um, but there there is something out there that that will specifically increase amygdala activity, um, and that so you know I I yeah I've learned a whole lot about what activates the amygdala and what turns down the amygdala. Um, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. I'm almost wondering if the goal in some ways maybe not immediately of your research, but in a sort of a wider therapeutic sense would be to get somebody to not need the big dramatic event of their yes. life to make them happy, but to make the sort of, um, you know, the coffee the good, with a friend, warm bath. I was yes. just going to say the morning. Yes, exactly. And I'm thinking almost like about like these gratitude practices, um, sort yeah, of going through your so, day and I would be really curious about what that would look like I almost yeah, want to just so, start putting people under an FMRI honestly well, I, I I have a collaboration with someone who does meditation uh research mm. and we're combining meditation and neurofeedback so, so cool. while you're meditating while you're it's mindfulness medicate meditation so while you're focusing on your breath and you're being present aware um can you also increase connectivity between these brain regions? Um, and when you, when you are at people's anxieties level, when you can do it, it people's anxieties levels are reduced. Um, so that's so another therapeutic avenue we're looking at is how to combine therapies. Um, and yeah, the mindfulness, um, it, it really does make me, have, has made me learn a lot about things like mindfulness, gratitude, savoring, yeah. um, and, and, and how we could use those and incorporate those into what we're doing. I'd almost love to imagine the differences in the fMRI machine, the sort of images between the happiest person I know who can, if tasked with going back through the day and thinking about the things they appreciate versus a depressed person, I would imagine that, that there would be a stark difference there. Um, And it would be so fascinating to see if that, the fMRI therapy could even like increase, you know, change the way they literally look at their day. Yeah, I, I think it could. And I think that's why it has lasting effects is because they're, they're learning how it feels to, you know, have the brain regions online that, that make these memories useful and, and positive for you. Um, and, and so that's what they, they, as they practice that more in their daily lives, it becomes kind of, you know, automatic almost back, back to, back to unconscious almost. Um, and you don't have to think about it anymore and you just kind of automatically do that. And that's why I think it lasts for so long is because people are, are really changing how their brain functions. They're not, it's not a temporary, um, or situational change. I, I want to just make sure you're okay with time. Um, yeah, I yeah I've, I've got nothing. Questions. I've got nothing to do. <laughs> it sounded like your research is is sort of forking um, where you are wondering, okay, if if the actual machine is a prohibitive factor, is there a way we could do this without the machine or replicate the, the effects of 
that environment, the, the intervention without the machine. Um, while you said you're still full steam ahead with the actual machine, um, does that road take you down like all sorts of policy and insurance? Oh God. Yeah. 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 So uh, you, it, basically you have to not just be a scientist. You have to be a businessman. You have to be a clinician. You have, there are so many hats you have to wear and so many worlds that I, I have to be involved in that. I never thought I was going to have to be, uh, you know, I never, never envisioned working with insurance, talking to insurance companies, um, and, and arguing with insurance companies sure. is just not something I ever envisioned for myself. And mm -hmm. it has made me really step out of the scientist role and into almost like a businesswoman role, um, which has been weird for, that, for me. Yeah. Is that, has that been interesting? It, it has been interesting. It's, it's a very it's it's very different because most of my days are spent, you know, writing papers, analyzing yeah. data, writing grants. Um, but then I go to conferences or I talk to to you or, or anyone really about this research. And I have to really, you know, you, you, you yourself brought up the bias against it. I have to really kind of sell it. Um, mm. And that has been a new new skill that I have learned that was not part of my training as a scientist. Yeah. Wow. Talk about yeah. I imagine that could be pretty discouraging. It can't. Yeah, it is. Uh, I've yeah. There there are, there are times when I just. I wonder what the point is, why I'm doing this, if nobody's ever going to be able to use it. Um, mm. You know, it just, it, it, sometimes it, it can be discouraging. If I'm never, if, if, if there is, if you're depressed, if your doctor's never going to say, would you like an antidepressant, cognitive behavioral therapy or neurofeedback? Why am I doing this? Uh, I, I'm making some people's lives better, but what I really want to do is, is reach everyone and, and the skepticism as justified uh, based on history, but also, you know, it's, it, it can, it can be frustrating to, to, to be in this field. Yeah. And it sounds like, I'm sorry if I'm reading too, too much into this, but it sounded earlier, like there was a little latent, um, if not hesitancy with with medication at least a preference to go the non-medication route first or to try something that's well that's that's first. true for a lot of people they a lot of people are are resistant to medication and they don't seek help for their for their psychiatric disorders because they don't want to be on drugs and so this is another option uh, and there are a lot of people out there where for whom drugs don't work uh, so we have a, a specific study for treatment resistant depression so these are people who have tried many antidepressants and not ever gotten any benefit from them uh, so this and, and that's really where my hope lies in terms of getting insurance companies involved, because for treatment resistant depression, this absolutely is more practical and, and, and feasible than uh, deep brain stimulation to implant something, you know, one of the brain implant technologies or ECT even. It's, it's much less, there are much fewer side effects. Uh, and so, you know, that's where my hope is, is that the really severely depressed patients for whom medication doesn't help uh, could realistically get this intervention someday. And I know you said that sometimes this process makes you feel like a business person, but I got the sense that you meant more in actually sort of selling the product. 
But when you think about the resistance from insurance companies, does that make you actually think about whether or not this is a sustainable business model? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. And I, I, you know, I have had conversations with with people, with uh, with entrepreneurs and people in the business world and, um, you know, quite frank conversations about what would this look like as a business model if someone were to pursue it? Um, and that's, you know, is it sustainable? Right. And you have to have a deep um, conflict within you as a scientist <laughs> trying to sell this product that you think will do better science and make people healthier, where this might be um, me just regurgitating things I've heard, but it, you you wonder sometimes if, if the goal of the insurance company is actually to cure people because oh, yeah, it's to make money. <laughs> right, right. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm a cynic. The insurance companies are just exist to make money, especially in America. Yeah, you know, it's just it's. And and yet they seem to be a massive regulatory factor in our medical field. So you have this. Um, it's not even an impasse. It seems like insurance is winning, right? Yeah, I, I would I would declare insurance the, the victor right now. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so, and oh. what, you know, what people can do is, is, is if we can get this out there and people know about it and they start asking their doctors about it, and then doctors start asking insurance companies about it, then that's what's happening with ketamine. Um, ketamine is something that's not covered by insurance companies, but it works really quickly for very severely suicidal, depressed, suicidally depressed patients. Uh, and there, you know, the, the research finally has gotten out there where enough people are, are asking their doctors for it, uh, that insurance companies are starting to look at it now and, and consider it. Yeah, that's interesting. I was going to ask you earlier if there were other things, uh, other medications or other treatments that you're almost jealous of, or you don't understand how that thing is sort of getting green lighted as opposed to, to your interest? Well, I'm definitely jealous of ketamine um, yeah. because they have, they, they have exploded, but, but ketamine itself is, is cheap. You know, mm. it's, it's another thing that it's, it's easy to sell because it's, it's a very cheap drug. Um, ultimately right now they're doing it in, in hospital settings uh, with the MDs and all that. But if you could end up prescribing that over the counter or not over the counter, but you know, prescribing that and, and for at home use um, it would be incredibly cheap. So I, I am jealous of ketamine. I'm also a little uh, jealous of DMT, like psychedelic therapy mm. um, because that, that seems to be getting a lot of attention. It should. Uh, the research is, is exciting about it, but for some reason, people seem to be more excited or interested in developing these psychotherapy, these uh, you know, therapies using LSD or, or DMT uh, or any other psychedelic, um, rather than fMRI, which has fewer side effects. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was afraid of uh, sounding a little too out there earlier, but I was going to reference this. Uh, the it's called MAPS. I don't know if you've heard of this organization. Mm -mm. It's the multidisciplinary something, something, something of psychedelic research. Mm. But I'd be really interested. I would imagine that groups like that would be really interested in having fMRI imaging, 
for yeah, them. Could, could we combine it? Could I, yeah, could, yeah, could we, could we have people? Yeah. That, I, I mean, one of the main problems with that is with fMRI, you have to be still. Uh, and so when you're, when you're <laughs> tripping, are, how, how still are you able to be? Uh, that could great. be a potential barrier. Um, but yeah, I have, I have thought about combining it with psychedelics um, because that's, uh, again, it's tapping into memory systems a lot um, and, and people general and positive valence systems, um, positive, have happy things <laughs> yeah yeah interesting how long do you have to lay down for <laughs> an hour and a half okay yeah and, and some people have fallen asleep you know some mm -hmm. and some people can't stand it they're claustrophobic um so again that's another limitation it's not for everyone um you know i i fall asleep in the scanner i can do i can do this task i've, I've done it before um but if you just throw me in an mri scanner i'd take a nap yeah what what is uh What's that experience like being a researcher and actually trying your product? It's I so imagine, cool. <laughs> I imagine it would be like somebody at MAPS doing a, <laughs> having yeah. a psychedelic experience. Well, I, I, I've always. Yours, yeah. <laughs> that, uh, my, mine is not illegal in any sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah no, the, I've always made sure that I, I wouldn't ask someone to do something that I wouldn't do. So I have always been a participant in my own experiment before I do it. And whenever I'm incorporating a new technology, like we do concurrent EEG recording. Um, so you have an EEG cap on also while you're in the scanner. Um, you know, I, I did it first. I make sure I go through everything. I know, I know what, what the subject is experiencing and I know that I can do it. And I know, so I, I, I don't feel bad asking other people to do it. Uh, you know, there are some studies out there that are unpleasant that deliver shocks or breathing that restricts your breathing. Um, and, and I wouldn't do those and I wouldn't ask people to do those. They have, they have their use, but I just, I, I, I very much have the mind that I don't want people to do something I wouldn't do. That's fascinating. Did I have to imagine, did that make you more enthusiastic about what you do coming out of, I mean, how, how far into your research did you then try it? Um, oh, very early before yeah. any subjects, before we had any people try it. Um, yeah, I tried different regions and, um, you know, before we settled on the amygdala. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was so cool. And it, and it makes it easier for me to get excited about because I've done it. I see, I can see, I've seen my brain activity and gained control over it. You know, yeah, wow. I sound a little mad scientist. Yeah. Here. Exactly. Right. Um, but it being having successfully done it and knowing how cool it is, uh, it's mm. it's easy for me to sell. Yeah, you probably come out of that tube. <laughs> yeah, evangelist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean it is. It's it's fantastic. Uh, I I love it, and I you know I'll, <laughs> I still sometimes sneak in. You know when we're when we're upgrading the scanner, or there does need to be a test or something. I'll be like, eh, let's let let me make sure it's everything's still working. Yeah, right. hook me up. I'll, yeah, <laughs> I'll just jump in for for an hour. It's good. You're sneaking boosters. <laughs> yes, I I am. I am, <laughs> and fortunately, I can do that. Yeah. Would you? I'd be curious. I, and, and please answer i mean i imagine <laughs> this is hard to get a if you were lying i wouldn't know and it would be hard for it would be very strange if you were to say no but like do you actually see in your day-to-day -day like a are you detecting that difference i mean what does that even feel like as a scientist is there a part of you being like am i just thinking this that yeah this is so now? you know i i that's a really good question no one's asked me that before um <laughs> Yeah, I do. How do I? I do. I feel different. Um, 
you know, and, but also the, so the thing, the thing I would answer for that is that, you know, my, my brain is not necessarily a depressed brain. Sure. Um, so that may not have really necessarily done anything. This, this was easy for me. And mm. so my patients have a much harder time learning to control the signal. It's not something they can instantly do. Um, and, and so that I think would be the kind of the difference is that I already was, my brain was already kind of using that. Um, mm. And I just am able to show off how great yeah. I can use it <laughs> while I'm in the scanner. And with the, with the actual patients, they're doing some sort of symptom inventory. I think you would yeah. do down there. Okay. So you're actually yeah. seeing that they are, it seems experiencing yeah, yeah. daily change. Yeah. The, the first, you know, the first study we just, just looked at after this, how did you feel? Um, and then we started incorporating, okay, well, a, a week later, how do you feel? Mm. Um, two weeks later, how do you feel? 12 weeks later, how do you feel? Uh, and, and the fact that we're still finding people feeling better 12 weeks later is so, so great. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of interventions don't have that kind of long lasting effect. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm fascinated. Um, I think before I sign off, I'm interested if you would have um, me maybe reach out to anybody else. Is there, is there anybody else you'd recommend I speak to if I'm really interested in this kind of thing? Anybody whose work you're really excited about in this field? Yeah. So um, somebody I'm really excited about, Sue Whitfield Gabrielli, <laughs> a mouthful of a name, um, but she's doing connectivity neurofeedback. Uh, which, so rather than just one region, basically looking at, at the connections between regions and doing mm. feedback there. And then, um, and she's at, uh, at MIT, uh, Harvard, she's at Harvard. Um, and I've then Kara Kerr, <laughs> uh, K-E-R-R, she's at Oklahoma and she's doing hyperscanning neurofeedback. So two people are in two different scanners and they get to see each other's brain activity and see if they can do something to change the other person's brain activity. Um, and so the, the thought is that therapists could use that. If the wow. therapist could see what their patient's amygdala was doing, could they intervene um, and, and, and help the, the, the patient? Uh, so that she's, she's doing some really, some really awesome work there with that. And what was the name of that? You said hyperscanning? Hyper, hyperscanning neurofeedback. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. We both had the same mentor, uh, Kara and I, um, and, and was, uh, his name's Yezi Baderka. And he was an, uh, an amazing physicist who just pushed the, the limits of MRI technology. Um, and he, he unfortunately passed last year from cancer. Um, oh, but he fine. was, he, he was groundbreaking. And I think all of his students are, are going to help change the world and, and what we do. That's so cool. And where were he was your mentor? Where again? I'm sorry. Uh, at, at the Laureate Institute for Brain Research in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where so I did cool. my postdoc. Wow. The Laureate Institute. That's awesome. Cool. Well, I am on the trail. Thank you. Thank you so yeah. much. I, I can't express enough how appreciative I am. Uh, it's really exciting. And it's awesome to talk to somebody so interested in this. Yeah, I love talking about my work. Uh, it's one of the perks of my job is getting to is getting to tell people you know how cool this is because our brains are so cool and that we can control our brains is even cooler. That's awesome. Well, I'm rooting for you, uh, and I'm certainly excited to see what else comes out of your lab. Um, I will mix this thing together. I'll do a little intro, then I'll send it over to you. It's it's sort of a bigger file, so it's easier to send as a Spotify thing if that's okay. Yeah, so, yeah, that's so fine. So it'll be technically published, although. Not too many people will see it until I sort of push it out wider. Okay. Wider. Yeah, that's awesome. fine. 
Um, oh, Depends on how much homework I have this week. <laughs> <laughs> I just started a PhD program about six weeks ago, so I'm Oof. still adjusting. <laughs> so, Rough. It is I, nice to be out of school. Yeah, I I would say best case scenario by Sunday. Oh, uh, wow, that fast. Okay, great. I'm going out of town uh, the 17th. Uh, okay. So I'll be, I'll case... be unavailable the 17th through the 21st, but okay. otherwise I'm around. Well, yeah. Uh, worst case scenario, I'm hoping by the seventh. Okay. Yeah. Then, then I am absolutely available. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. I'll be in touch and uh, yeah. thank you again. It was, for it was nice talking to you. Great talking to you. Bye. Bye.